Hello, I'm Pastor Rob Spencer of Church United. We are excited because God is at work in our community of Christ followers. And it is my hope that God works in your life as you listen to this message today. If you'd like more information about Church United, please visit us at churchunited.family. It's good to see you today. It's good to be here today, and uh, man, it's great to get to share God's Word with you, Um, because if I wasn't sharing God's Word with you, I don't know that I'd want to stand up in front of a couple hundred people and uh, just say, hey, so uh, uh, that's just kind of how I am, but I love, love, love to share God's Word, and so I'm glad we get to do that this morning. My name is Pastor Mark. Uh, For those of you who haven't met me, uh, new around here, about a month and a half now, and so if you're like, who is that guy? Um, I am a fixture here at Church United now, but I'm a new fixture, and so uh, please come and introduce yourself. I'll be looking for new faces, too, and and saying hey, but uh, just really enjoying getting to know you, and I hope that uh, you're also blessed by getting to know me as well. My son is here with me, Ethan. Uh, He's in Stanton with me. My wife and my daughter are still in Ohio. Uh, My daughter's finishing up cosmetology school there, and uh, she'll be done sometime at the beginning of November, and my wife is up there trying to sell our home, and so pray for her as she keeps staging the house and uh, getting it ready for when people come through and look at it, and pray that our house sells, um, because that would be quite a commute to go six and a half hours every day um, from Ohio to Stanton, Virginia. So um, some people do it, I know. Um, I'd prefer not to um, if, if, if that would be God's desire for us. But you know what? Not my will, but God's be done. So um, great to be with you today, as I said. And lately on Sundays, as Pastor Rob prayed, we have been exploring what it looks like to live a life outside of the boat. And so that's why we've got the boats hanging here and down here is because we're encouraging you to get out of the boat, to live a life of faith in which you're not in the comfort of the boat. You're out walking on the water like Peter did. And we're walking through the book of Acts and just kind of seeing snapshots of Peter's life and how he was walking outside of the boat and taking steps of faith. Today is a snapshot where He's actually one of the characters, but we're going to be looking at some others, and it's a little bit of a challenging passage for us. We've, as we're looking at this get out of the boat idea, we've been looking at the values here at a church. So what does it mean to walk by faith? Well, it means that you're a gospel-driven servant. It it means that you are a a generous giver, and it also means that you're a genuine worshiper. And we're kind of digging into the genuine worshiper part uh, right now over these next couple weeks. And so what does it look like? Well, we're going to look at a passage in Acts chapter 4 at the end and the beginning of Acts chapter 5 that gives us a little bit of a snapshot into what that looks like from the life of the early church. But as we, right before we do that, I would just ask that uh, you watch here up on the screen with me. I want you to just see this little clip to kind of set the context for us. So watch this. Oh, 
big boy. What's your name? And uh, what can I oh, get you for Christmas? Don't tell him what you want. He's a liar. Let the kids alone. You disgust me. How can you live with yourself? Just cool it, Zippy. You sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> oh, buddy, the elf is not happy. Uh, he's really happy whenever he first sees Santa, but then he's shocked when he realizes this guy is just playing the part of Santa, right? And Buddy knows who Santa is, but this guy, he's a, percent, a, a, a pretender. He just looks a little bit like Santa, but he's not the real deal. And so what does he say? He says, you sit on a throne of lies. And I would say, as we look at this passage, keep this in mind. When we settle for looking the part we sit on a throne of lies. And so let's look at this. Keep that in mind. Acts chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 32. And I uh, want to read just a couple of verses here as we, as we jump in this morning. It says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And then jump down to uh, verse 12 of Acts chapter 5. This is kind of the, the, um, it's the bookends of this passage. And it says this at the end of verse 12. It says, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, you'll see in just a minute why that's important and why that matters. But we're going to look at a little account here of what's going on in Acts chapter 4 at the end and what's going on with the early church. And, uh, and, and like I said, this is a bookend. And what we're seeing here so far in the book of Acts is these are the first days of the early church. And they were bright they were exciting. Hopefully you've captured that as we've talked about what's going on here. I mean, happiness and joy, rejoicing, blessing and fellowship filled the believers' hearts. Even in the midst of difficulty and opposition from the religious establishment, this was the attitude of their hearts. This was the atmosphere or the ethos of the church. Their days were filled with solid teaching from uh, the apostles. They, they prayed and they broke bread together. They, they observed the Lord's Supper and they ate meals from house to house together. I love how John MacArthur says it. He captures it this way. The joy was really overwhelming. The love was all-inclusive. The fellowship was deep and rich. The testimony of converted souls was loud and clear. We estimate that during this time, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people, men, women, and children, who gave their lives to Jesus Christ and went through the waters of baptism. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute, okay? This is a period of, of weeks, months, something like that. 20,000 people. John MacArthur says this about it, and I love the way he says it. He says, virtually every pool in the city of Jerusalem must have being, been being used for baptisms. And so everywhere you went in the city of Jerusalem, you're watching people go under the water and come back up, right? And so how could this not have an impact on the entire city? Individual lives were being changed. 
families were being changed. Neighborhoods were being changed. The entire city of Jerusalem is being changed because everywhere you look, all you could see was people who were coming to Christ. I was downtown yesterday in Stanton, and all you could see were Hubble pumps and Huffle lumps and Puggles and Muggles. I don't know what all the things are, but the place is just transformed. I took this picture of, of uh, I think it's Beverly, uh, but I'm not really sure because I am getting to know the street names right now, packed with people. Now imagine if as people are walking past these side streets and stuff, they're watching and they're seeing people. There, there was a mermaid in a pool there, by the way, um, not being baptized, but uh, um, I, I don't really know what was going on with that. But anyway, um, imagine people are being baptized. We were walking through the streets of Stanton and they're thinking, what in the world is going on? He couldn't help but get people's attention. This is the atmosphere and the environment of the early church. And so this is what we see. The grace that comes to us through Jesus and what he did on the cross was radically transforming them. And so this great grace that is spoken of can wipe away the sin of, the sin of stain, the stain of sin, excuse me, as it flows full and free. And so you notice, as we looked in verse 33, what does it say? And great grace was upon them all. Because when the gospel changed their hearts, it also changed their priorities and practices. So remember this, great grace was upon them all. Now here's what immediately follows that. I love this. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Do not miss the connection between great grace was upon them all and the priority and the practice of them caring for one another. The two go hand in hand. And what Luke is showing us in the book of Acts is he's saying, listen, whenever people are genuine worshipers, whenever the gospel changes your life, it cannot help but be seen in your actions and your activities and your priorities. And so he walks us through this. When we're recipients of great grace, we are givers of great grace. It's not a requirement for us to receive grace. It's a result of receiving grace. And it was and is a voluntary, joy-filled choice. You are not going to see anywhere in this passage, you're not going to see anywhere in the pages of the book of Acts that surround this, a, a command or an obligation by any of the leaders of the church that this is what people had to do. But the situation in Jerusalem at this time provided plenty of opportunity for grace to overflow. The city was flooded with Jewish visitors who had come from all across the Roman Empire in order to celebrate Passover and Pentecost in the holy city. So it is just filled with visitors. It's not just the people who regularly live in Jerusalem. It is all kinds of extra people. Every house, every room, every inn and stable was packed with people from other places. And those who became believers, remember, it's like 20,000, somewhere in there, and it's growing daily, as we'll continue to read. They didn't want to go home because this is where the church was. Jerusalem was the place where the church started, and it hadn't gone out yet. So imagine, you have this 
life-transforming encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're forgiven of your sins, and you're beginning to break bread with other people and pray, and you're listening to the apostles' teachings every day in Solomon's portico. And all of this is happening, and more people are getting saved, and they're getting baptized, and you're going, well, I could go back to where I live, and none of this is happening. I could go back to where I live, and the apostles aren't there. And so everybody wanted to stay. You can't blame them for wanting to stay there. But the challenge was, a lot of these individuals were already very poor people. And they were living hand to mouth. And it took everything they had to get to Jerusalem in order to celebrate Passover and Pentecost. And so now they don't actually have a home. They don't have a vocation in the city of Jerusalem. And so they are really in dire straits. And so the church begins looking at this, and what comes to their mind is, we want to be concerned about their spiritual needs, and we want to see them continue to grow spiritually in their relationship with the Lord, but in order for that to happen, we have got to help cover their physical needs. And so what do the wealthy among the people in the church do? They begin to sell their property, sell their homes, sell anything that they can, And they lay it at the apostles' feet so that they can provide for the needs of these believers that are just coming to Christ on a daily basis and want to stay and be a part of the church. They wanted to be there. And they understood what it meant to be knit together like a family. They understood that these challenges were glorious There was no arm twisting or guilting. They didn't mind. They even preferred sacrificing as a natural overflow of God's blessing in their lives. If God has been so good to me as to forgive me of my sins and give me eternal hope, then the least I can do is give some of my temporal things that I can't take with me anyway so that others can experience this incredible blessing. They were preoccupied with the needs of one another, and it is a genuine expression of worship on their part. I think that's a beautiful picture of the practical nature of worship in our lives. Genuine worshipers are practical. It overflows in our lives. Jesus taught that the greatest command was to love God and to love people. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, if you want to check that and read it later on. But Jesus essentially says the two are inseparable. Love God, love people. Now understand this, the only reason we can genuinely love at all, God or others, is because God first loved us. That's what it tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 and following. It says that God, we love because he first loved us. And then it says this, anyone who does not love his brother does not know God's love. Even there, we see this practical nature of genuine worship. And so Jesus, the the greatest example of God's love for us is Jesus going to the cross. And when we experience his unsearchable love and swim in his great grace, it supernaturally leads to loving him and loving those around us in concrete and practical ways. I love the book of James. James chapter 1, starting at verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 16. is very practical and tangible. What is true religion? What is a genuine worshiper? You care for orphans and widows. You watch your tongue. You, you don't Um, play favoritism within the church and if someone has a need you don't just say hey I'm praying for you you provide for that need 
Because when the love of God invades our lives, we love others in very practical and concrete ways. And that's worship and its whole life. So if your understanding and expression of worship goes no farther than singing and sitting on Sunday, my heart breaks for you. My heart breaks for you because there's so much more available. There's so much more to genuine worship. And if that's your definition, you may be just looking the part. You may be sitting on a throne of lies because when we are in relationship with God and one another, then it is practical, it is concrete. The shut-in gets cared for. The at-risk child gets tended to. The hungry family and the immigrant are provided for. The inmate and the ex-convict are loved and accepted. The family in crisis is surrounded with encouragement. The depressed and the lonely are filled with hope. And none of it is required or forced or coerced. None of it is a drudgery. It is a supernatural result of the church living as the grace-filled family God created her to be. And that is beautiful. Oh, is that beautiful. That, my friends, is why in John chapter 17, Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. That's what God is calling us to be as a church. That's what a genuine worshiper is. Genuine worshipers live from a transformed heart rather than just looking the part. I love how Luke does this because instead of just leading us to think this is a theoretical ideal of the church, he graciously provides us with an actual account of a couple people. So look at verse 36 in chapter 4. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we have Joseph. Now we know him as Barnabas, but that was his nickname. That wasn't his real name. And his nickname means son of encouragement or comfort or consolation, exhortation. And those are descriptions. Since it was his nickname, most of us don't go around telling people what nickname to give us, right? I have several, and I've not made any of them up. Other people have made them up for me. One just so happens to be Uncle Mark. Um, And so uh, I'm getting called that a lot, which is perfectly fine with me. But the thing about this that we have to know about Barnabas is this description of him as a son of encouragement, comfort, consolation, exaltation was given to him by the recipients of grace overflowing from his life. So this is just one account of the normal daily practice of Barnabas that we're reading about here. Through this snapshot, we see that this was somewhat public because Barnabas went to the apostles and he laid what, uh, what he received from the sale of his property at the apostles' feet. But in the context, it is very clear that Barnabas is not motivated by recognition and he's not motivated by honor. His posture was one of He is telling the apostles, do whatever you want to do with this and give it to whomever needs it. They don't need to know it's from me. I don't need to know who you give it to. I just want you to know that I'm voluntarily, joyfully expressing this, giving this, surrendering it because of my experience of God's love and grace. That is Barnabas' posture in this. And he wasn't looking for spiritual status. He wasn't seeking to make a good impression There's no pretense or selfishness or insincerity in Barnabas. His heart has been transformed, and as a result of that, 
he wants to be sacrificial in a very practical way. Yet to Barnabas, and I would say that those of you in this room who, who have lived in this place, who are, are living in this place, it's not sacrifice in your mind, is it? It wasn't sacrifice in his mind because it's wrapped in spiritual grace. This is just what you do. This is just what a genuine worshiper does. It wasn't until much later in life that I started to realize some of the sacrifices that my parents made for me when I was a child and a, and a teenager. Um, when my kids got braces, I realized um, the sacrifice my parents made for uh, my braces. Uh, as my daughter is moving into uh, her, her college years, I, I realized the sacrifice my parents made in helping me pay for school. I remember uh, all of the sporting events that my parents showed up to, all the time and, and energy and rearranging of schedule that, that they did. And never once in, in my life did they ever make me feel as though you owe us for this. It was just what they did because... We were family. I remember when I was six, shortly after I got my license, just a few months, I was in a car accident, totaled their car, a few people in the car with me, and they all got hurt, and, uh, you know, it was my fault, and, and my parents handled that as parents would, and there was discipline involved with that, but, but at the same time, they, they absorbed a lot there that really as a 16-year-old, I probably should have taken on myself. But that was just part of what my parents did. That was part of family. That, w that was part of them recognizing you are our son, and, and this is just what we do. And, and that's what we're seeing in Barnabas here, and that's what we're seeing in the church. But the problem here is that that, wasn't, that was the nature of the church, but it was not that way for everyone. So look at chapter 5, verse 1, and we read about a husband and a wife but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now this is where we get into the tough part where people start asking questions and they get really curious. And, and I want you to understand, just, just track with me here for a few minutes and kind of let those questions sit at the back of your mind for just a minute. Because what Luke is doing with, for us here is he's providing a contrast, okay? Remember, he starts by telling us the church was in one heart and one mind. And what were they doing? They were providing for the needy. And then that's the unity that was taking place. And then in verse 12, after this whole account is, is shown of Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, in verse 12, we see him again saying the whole church was in unity. They were in one accord. So please understand that what we're about to read doesn't derail the church. It's something that's going on in the church, and God still describes through Luke the church as being in one heart and one soul, being unified and providing for needs. And most of those who were voluntarily selling their possessions were doing it, motivated by a, a heart that was transformed by great grace. However, we know at least of one couple that we read of here that were more concerned about outward appearance and looking the part than others' needs. They were sitting on a throne of lies. They were exploiting others' needs in order to appear more spiritual. They were pretending to be something they were not. They lied in an effort to elevate their spiritual status in the eyes of others. They weren't really willing to sacrifice everything, but they wanted to get in on the accolades and the honor that they saw for people like Barnabas as though they had sacrificed everything. 
What is a word we use for that? Not only in the church, but culture in general. Everybody says with an H. Hypocrisy. We call that a hypocrite. Pretending to be something you're not. And like I said, you don't have to go to church to be familiar with the term hypocrite. As a matter of fact, sometimes it seems like people who are not affiliated with the church understand the term better and use that as their go-to for the reason why they don't come to church. Well, I'll tell you this, the church always has room for one more hypocrite. Um, and so you can always share that with someone. And I, I mean, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, but I also say that a little bit as, man, there's a sense in which every one of us in this room, we're a little bit of a hypocrite. Praise God that Jesus went to the cross for us. Amen? Yeah. So as you think about this, and Ananias and Sapphira, we know that people play the game. We know that we pretend to be something they're not when we talk about a hypocrite, disguising themselves as spiritual, putting up a ruse, wearing a mask. You know what's really sobering is as we look at this text, there are people who won't come to church because they say there's too many hypocrites, and this passage basically shows us that God doesn't have a whole lot of patience for them either. A person who lives as a hypocrite is walking a very touchy, fine line. It's a dangerous life to live. I want you to understand this, though. Avoiding hypocrisy is not about your pursuing perfection. Please hear me. Avoiding hypocrisy is not about you or me pursuing perfection. Good luck on that one if that's what you're trying to do, because I promise you, the first person who's going to be deceived about that is yourself. And then you're going to try to deceive God, and then you're going to try to deceive other people. And in all of that, you are going to find yourself in the camp of Ananias and Sapphira, and it's not a good place to be. Here's what I want you to see. Avoiding hypocrisy is about humbly yielding to Jesus' perfect substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God never told me I have to be perfect. Now, he did say, be holy as I am holy, but understand Without Jesus, you can't fulfill that command. Only Christ in you fulfills that. That's why I love 2 Corinthians 5.21 so much. A hypocrite is a person who tries to do it on their own rather than saying, it's Christ in me that is the hope of glory, which is what Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. That is my hope of not being a hypocrite. That is my hope of being made new because as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a Christian, I acknowledge my need, I acknowledge my sins, and I acknowledge my great, great Savior. But hypocrites get caught up in the lure, the subtle lure of image management. They deceive themselves and try to deceive others into believing they've got it all together, that they're spiritual, that they get caught up in a lying life pursuing a deceptive impression of one's spiritual character. And Peter steps in, being informed by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 3, here's what he says to Ananias as Ananias comes and lays his gift at his feet. Peter says, Ananias, I can't help but think that Peter has tears coming down his cheeks as he says this. Why? 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men of about, uh, rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened. She was at home getting ready. She was, uh, it takes ladies a little bit longer to get ready, so she was fixing herself all up, and, and Ananias said, I can't wait, I got to get there. And so he was there three hours before her. He says this, and Peter said to her in verse 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Can I tell you a really simple lesson from that? God will expose your hypocrisy. God will expose my hypocrisy. And it is not because he's mean, and it's not because he's lacking mercy. It is because he wants what is good for us, and he wants what is good for his church, and hypocrisy is not good for you, and it's not good for the church, and it's not good for the world who is watching us to see what God is like. So when God exposes this, it is good, because God wants holiness and purity and sincerity. And Ananias and Sapphira find themselves trapped in the horrors of their hypocrisy. Because nothing is more horrific for a hypocrite than to be publicly exposed, right? Because you're trying to put up a mask. You're trying to pretend. And if all of a sudden, in front of everyone, you are called out for what you really are instead of what you want everybody to see and think you are, then all of a sudden, everything falls apart. And that's what happens for Ananias and, and Sapphira here. It's like they put up their fake veneer. How many of you, um, you, you remember pleather? I think it's still around. Anybody remember pleather, plastic leather? Um, yeah, it's, it's the fake veneer. Some of us, we would rather be pleather Christians than the genuine. I worked with a guy who was from, uh, from uh, um, uh, Belgium. And we were playing, uh, <laughs> what's that? Not Pictionary, it's, it's the word one where you, where, yeah, uh, yeah, it's something. You guys know what it is. Um, I can't understand what you're saying, so I apologize. I need to clean out my ears from the wax, I guess. But he got the word. Uh, he got the word genuine, and um, English wasn't his first language. He's very good in English, but for some reason, when he looked at the card, he called it genuine, and he kept saying genuine leather, genuine leather, genuine leather. Sorry, I, I thought it was funny. Um, obviously, you didn't. Um, that's okay. Again, feels really good to stand up in front of people and you go, that one bombed, right? It's okay. It happens. God humbles us in that way. We want to be genuine leather or genuine leather, not pleather, right? But a hypocrite, whenever the genuine is exposed of what they really are, it's 
a horrible thing. So let me give you a little, a little example because it's quite possible, I think. Now, I am not trying to remove what God was doing here, okay? I am not trying to remove God's hand in all of this. But, but let, me just, let me just give you an example of, of possibly uh, what could have happened here. Ananias just sold his property. Ananias brings it forward, and he's keeping a little bit. And he and Sapphira had agreed to this, but it was between the two of them. Now imagine, imagine I bring one of you up here. We're doing this scenario, and, and I say to you, is this everything you sold it for? Well, yes, it is. And I say, why did you just lie to the Holy Spirit? Now tell me, under these lights, do you think you're going to start sweating? If you really did keep a little bit back for yourself, it is quite possible that Ananias was so humiliated and so horrified that his heart just stopped. Just like that. Heart attack right in the middle of it. The anxiety, the stress. Now again, I am not removing the fact that God worked here. However, the one thing that I see here is I don't see it say God struck him down. I don't see that it says that he didn't. I don't see that it says he did either. And so therefore, it is very possible that just under all of this, that could have happened. So let me give you a little example. I heard a little story of a boy who uh, his family went to church, and on the way home one day, his mom was sitting in the front seat of the car, and she was talking to his dad, and he was eavesdropping in the back while he was pretending like he was playing something. And his mom was talking about this person that she talked to on a regular basis and how this person got uncomfortably close. And when this person got uncomfortably close, they had really bad breath. And so she said to her husband, she said, the next time this person does this, I'm going to offer them a breath mint. So the next Sunday, everybody's at church, and this person walks up to the mother, and she's talking very, very close, and, and uh, they're having a conversation, and the little boy from across the, the church sees his mom talking, and so he comes over, and he pulls on his mom's skirt. Anybody know what's coming? And he looks up at her, and he goes, hey, mom, are you going to offer her a breath mint? Now, anybody ever had your children do something like that for, to you before? And your heart, maybe I'm telling that story and your heart is sinking in. You're going, oh, I'd be mortified, right? Now, I'm not saying that there was any hypocrisy going on there, but what I'm saying is the person was exposed. It's embarrassing, and you start to backpedal, and you start to explain. Now, imagine Ananias and Sapphira in this situation, in the midst of public, expecting honor and accolades, and instead getting called out for being pleather. That's what's going on in this place. And understand this, hypocrisy cuts off the flow of life to us and through us. It's a heart issue. Rather than great grace filling our hearts, Satan fills our hearts, as we read here in Acts chapter 5. Luke 6 tells us out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the life is lived. Ananias and Sapphira's hypocritical heart lied to men, and more significantly, they lied to God. Now understand this, they didn't have to sell their property, they didn't have to give all of the proceeds to help other believers. That is not what is going on here. These were not their sins. Their sin was their deceit. They were sitting on a throne of lies. And understand that genuine worshipers live from a transformed heart rather than just looking the part. Because if we just look the part, we are in danger and perhaps we are right there sitting on a throne of lies. When we're settling for looking the part, we misrepresent the gospel that transforms hearts. And that is what Ananias and Sapphira missed. 
It's a true reflection of the gospel when we willingly and joyfully go all in on our faith in both our love for God and our love for others. Now understand, that doesn't mean when you go all in, doesn't mean you have to sell all of your possessions. So everybody who's thinking that right now, you can go, okay, that's not what it means. It also does not mean that you have to pack up and head to the jungles of the Amazon in order to be all in. But if that's what God's prompting you to do, you better listen. And you better do it, and you better be honest about it. Honest with God and honest with others. I believe this is what God is calling you to. Don't be deceitful in your heart. Don't let Satan fill your heart. Here's what it means. It means that we genuinely express the reality of the transformation that is taking place as God's great grace infiltrates every fiber of our being. Is God's grace today, this morning, infiltrating and transforming your life? Let me hear you. Is it? If it's not, check with God. Please. Because God's grace is so great, it will transform you. It will transform me. And here's why this matters. Because of the nature of God's heart toward us and what we reflect. Do we realize that the God of the universe went all in on us? Have you thought about this recently? I I would imagine many, 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 many of you have. But it doesn't hurt, even if you just were, to revisit it again. God didn't send us a self-help manual. He didn't send us a Dear John letter that said, good luck, I hope you figure this one out. He didn't even send us an angel to remedy the rot of our rebellion. God came himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And not only did he come to earth willingly, he went to the cross willingly. John chapter 10, verse 11 and verse 18. No one, no one took Jesus' life from him. He gave it willingly. Hebrews tells us that he gave it for the joy set before him, despising its shame. This is Jesus, very God, going to the cross, knowing that it meant our salvation, our liberation from the death sentence of sin and life, full, abundant, and free through faith in him. This is our God. This is the gospel. And genuine worshipers readily and regularly acknowledge that we contribute nothing to that deal. Not a thing. That's why one of my favorite songs is Rock of Ages. My favorite line, I I would say this ranks maybe above everything else. Favorite line in that song, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Because it reminds me of the extraordinary grace of our God. And that as a genuine worshiper, if Christ has transformed me, which he has, then it is not only going to impact my love for him, it's going to live, impact my love for others, and it is going to be concrete, and it is going to be practical daily becoming more and more immersed in that relationship with God, getting to know holistically his character and his heart will radically shape how you live this life. And when it does, looking the part will just seem empty and futile. Why? Why would we want to impress people with us whenever we can point them to a Savior who can captivate them? 
That's a genuine worshiper. That's what we see here in this text. You live from a transformed heart rather than just looking the part.